right at the start of the old second book in the Old Testament is Exodus. Exodus is a story, if you've not been here the last few weeks and months, is a story of how God leads his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, out of slavery, uh, how he calls Moses to lead his people out. Um, and that's what we've been working through this story. And it's a brilliant story because not only is it uh, a story about how God led a, a people out a couple of thousand years ago, but it's a story of what God does in our lives, of how God leads us out of the slavery that can entangle us into freedom in Jesus. So that's a little bit of a, a, a kind of pricey of the book in some senses. Um, but this evening, or this afternoon even, we wanted to just really focus on the bit from the book that you've all been waiting for, which is the genealogy, uh, the second half of Exodus 6. If you don't know, genealogy is a list of names. So we're gonna, I'm going to read this out, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, get into it in a moment. It will, here we go. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanoch, Palu, Herzon, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jamal, Jamin, Ohad, Yakin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Moriah, the years of the, of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimea, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amran, Esau, Hebron, and Uziel. These are the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Moriah, Malai, and Mushi, these are the clans of, some of these names we should really bring back into fashion, don't you think? I've never met anyone called Mushi, but that's a great name. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amran took his wife, Jechebed, his father's sister. I'm just seeing if any of you have figured that out here. Okay. Because if, if none of you have noticed that that's a bit weird, then I can just skip that and I don't have to explain what's going on here. The fact that Amran took as his wife, his father's sister. That's his auntie. Okay. <laughs> Some of the pen is dropping. We'll get to that later. None of you would notice, had you? Well, we could have just completely missed that, and that would have been fine. She bore him Aaron and Moses. There you go. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Nephech, and Zichri. The sons of Uziel, Mishiel, uh, Elisaphan, and Sitiri. Aaron took as his wife, Elishaba, the daughter of Amanidab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Elysia, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aseer, Elkanah, and Abisaphah. These are the clans of the Korites, Silesia. Aaron's son took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Let me pray. God, we ask for help 
to make sense of your word, Father. Uh, We believe that all of scripture is God-breathed and speaks to us. And we pray that you would speak to us this afternoon. Amen. Now, the first question when you come across this, maybe uh, if some of you have read a Bible before, uh, you would have uh, got to various parts of the Bible where you get these genealogies, these lifters' names, and you probably would have asked, why? What on earth is going on? Which is what I've spent most of the week asking myself. Why? Why, 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 why? So, I thought we'd tackle some of those whys straight off the bat. So first of all, I guess a really good question is, why even the Bible? Because you might, maybe you've come in here and you're not a believer in Jesus, or maybe you're not sure, or you've got some questions, or you've been coming here regularly, and you might think, why do every week they spend so much time studying the Bible? Um, what's, what's that about? What's, what are they trying to achieve? What's their point? You know, surely there are better things that we could be doing on a Sunday afternoon. And obviously there's lots of people in our city who choose many other things to do rather than come to church and spend time studying the Bible. So why do we do that? Well, first of all, we believe, we honestly believe that this book, the Bible, has the power to change your life. It's not just a book of uh, rules or a book of myths and stories from thousands of years ago, but within it is, is the words of God that speak right into our hearts. It says in uh, Isaiah, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not reta- return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God sent his word to us for a purpose. Like when, we, uh, uh, when a cloud comes over and uh, we might complain about it because we're stuck out on our bike getting soaking wet, but uh, there'd be many parts of the world that we lived that we would rejoice if a cloud came over and it rained on us, if we'd been through a long season of drought, whatever, because the rain is God's provision to us. The same way that rain comes and feeds the earth so that plants and food can sprout up, so the word of God feeds our souls. It comes and waters us, blesses us. Now, obviously, we don't worship the Bible. We're we're passionate about it, but it's not something that we worship. But the, the wonderful thing is this book points us to Jesus. That's, that's perhaps its main, well, it is its main purpose, is it points us to Jesus. It says in John 5, this is Jesus speaking. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. That was Jesus' message. to so all the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were quoting scriptures at him. He said, you search the Bible And he was talking about these books. He was talking about books like Genesis and Exodus. You search them trying to find eternal life, but actually they speak about me. That's what the Bible is about. It tells us about Jesus all through the Bible, not just the New Testament, the Gospels, but all through the Bible. Scripture is the, it's a a, a quote here from a guy called Kevin Van Hooser. He said, scripture is the voice of God that articulates the word of God, which is Jesus Christ. Scripture is speaking to us, the Bible speaking to us about Jesus. And you might think the next question, well, you can make sense of the Bible, but why the Old Testament, right? 
because surely the New Testament is where all the good stuff is. That's, that's, where, that's where God seems a lot nicer and everything seems a bit kind of kinder. Uh, that can be sometimes the stereotype that we can fall into. That there's, in the Old Testament, there's kind of an angry God, and in the New Testament, there's sort of a happy God. And we can sometimes make that distinction without even realizing it. But that's not really what the Bible's like. Actually, your Bible is, 75% of it is the Old Testament anyway, so we'd be silly to ignore, ignore it. But in the Bible, we meet the same God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's Exodus 34, this is an encounter that Moses has with God. It says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's the same all the way through the scripture, abounding in mercy and grace, faithfulness to us. That's what he's like. And Jesus said that he, he didn't come to just destroy the law. He didn't just come to take all the Old Testament and throw it in the bin, but he came to fulfill the law is what it says. Jesus said that all of the Old Testament points to him. It says in Luke 24, this is again an account of Jesus meeting with his disciples. It says beginning with Moses, the book of Exodus, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus literally sat down with his disciples, read Exodus, which we've been working through, and explained to them how it pointed to him, how it was about him. So when we read Exodus, that's the thing that we should be looking for in our hearts. Where does this tell us about Jesus? And I guess the next why to ask would be, why genealogies? <laughs> why a list of names? And there's a lot of them in the Bible, is probably the first thing to say. So if we just, if, if you, when you're reading the Bible, you get, and this is what I tend to do, you come to a list of names and you just kind of, you just speed through it, you just kind of glaze over, go yada, 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 yeah, 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 blah, 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 and you whiz on. But the thing is, there's maybe if there's so many of them, not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well, in the Gospels, uh, at the start of Matthew, for instance, there's a list of names, a genealogy, maybe they're there for a, for a purpose, Maybe even if the, the New Testament itself starts with a genealogy, then maybe they're there for a reason. And I guess the first thing to say is what I prayed at the start, is that it says in 2 Timothy, all scripture, all of the Bible is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's that saying? What that's saying is, if you want to be equipped for all of life, you need all of Scripture. If you just want to be equipped just for part of it, then just read part of the Bible. The Bible speaks into every... You might think, well, there's some things that the Bible doesn't address, but actually it does. It speaks into our life, speaks into our world. It brings us a timeless truth, which is above our existence. It calls us to a different way to live, to follow Jesus. If we want to be equipped with life, we need all of the Bible. And as well, these lists of names, these genealogies, they, they show that the Bible is true. Because if someone was just trying to make up this book, and someone was trying to create a book that people like us would read, it probably wouldn't have these lists in, right? <laughs> if you think about it. If it was just trying to, to entertain us, they'd probably just get rid of these bits. 
And actually, if you often, as we'll come to a little bit later, when you get into these lists, there's often some quite unsavory characters. There's some people that you think, how did he get in the Bible? Like, surely, I'm not in the Bible, but he gets in? What's that about? And if, if, if someone was just trying to make up the Bible, then some of these people, some of these lists would just be removed. They just take them out. Also that... Um, these genealogies, they show us the importance of people in God's story. They show us that God really, uh, uh, it's, it's, the, the Bible is a wonderful story of people. It's not about the people, it's about God. But all through it, people appear everywhere. The good and the bad of humanity appears in the Bible. It's because God loves people. He's interested in us, not just interested in us, he loves us. He's called us to be part of his family. And some people have had the privilege of getting their names in the book. But these lists show us that God cares for us, that God cares for people. Also, these lists, they show us, as we'll look up in a moment, they show us that God has a divine purpose, a plan, that he has a scheme, that God's working things out. Often these lists, they're not just a whole, it's not just like a register of a bunch of people in a room but it goes through generation after generation. It, they tell a story. And through that story, you can see God's plan working out. So let's focus a little bit on this particular genealogy, this list that we've read a moment ago. First of all, it's worth saying that all these people are, they're ordinary people. I guess the, the best equivalent of like a genealogy uh, in, in, in our life would be like a, a family tree. You know, you can go and research your family history. Uh, my auntie researched my family history going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, most of my relatives were smugglers, basically. S smugglers and farm laborers. So there you go. And someone who was related to Lord Nelson, who, who was, a, was probably none of you have heard of. But in England, people go, oh, yeah, check you. But, but there you go. Smugglers and farm laborers, basically, is my family. And then I married Joe, and that fixed everything, so there you go. But you, <laughs> in a family tree, I guess um, another equivalent would be a family tree that you would get in a royal family. You know, the kings and queens, and they have them kind of illustrated on marvelous big pictures, the kind of the line of the heir of the throne and who they're related to. And often when you study those things, you realize that often they airbrush a lot of people out of history. <laughs> people just get wiped out. People just get ignored deleted from history. There's lots of stories in, in various royal families all over the world of, of uh, various cousins and sons and daughters being born who were severely disabled and they just get written out of history. There's, a, there's an account in, in the, uh, one of the, the English queen, some of her cousins, there's several books that said that they died at birth when actually they lived well into their 70s and 80s but they were severely disabled. So people just wanted to write them out of history. That's often what the, those kind of royal lines do. They just wash people out. But as I've already said, with these biblical genealogies, these kind of Bible family trees, people don't get wiped out. So as we looked at earlier, we get Moses' dad, Amran, marries his auntie, Moses' great auntie. Now, I would imagine that would make the family reuni reunions a little bit awkward. Like, what do you say? Like, you mum, are you great auntie? Like, how do you address them? It's a bit peculiar. Um, we can... 
There you go, if you really want to study it, the verse will appear. Amram took as his wife Jechabed, his father's sister. She bore an Aaron and Moses. And then in the next verse, we meet the sons of Esau, Korah, Nephah, and Zichri. Korah's a fascinating guy. Korah, that name in Hebrew means baldy, which is a bit harsh, I guess. So, because lots of, lots of babies, there you go, we've got two Korahs down here. You know, lots of babies are born with no hair, but just to name them Baldy, just because they were born with no hair, seems a bit harsh. The rest of their life, they've got this, this name. And, and Korah, you can read about his story in Numbers 16. He's one of Moses' cousins, and he leads a rebellion against Moses. He gets jealous of Moses and Aaron and tries to take them out. And uh, actually, if you read the story, you'll discover that he, he has a pretty grisly end. He ends up getting buried alive. It says him and his family were swallowed by the earth. Not because he was bald, so don't worry. It was because he led a rebellion. That's not what happens to bald people, don't worry. And these stories, as we said before, they, they show us that this isn't just a made-up thing. <laughs> like, why are these people in this list? What's God trying to say to us? What, what, what's going on here? And the thing is that God, God's plan works out through all sorts of flawed people through all sorts of flawed, broken situations. We think, oh, God could never use me because oof, look about this or look at what happened in my family history. Or, you know, my, you would find it all the time. People say, oh, my family's such a mess. There's so much confusion and people are embarrassed about it as though God somehow might not be able to use them. That somehow you need to come out with some sort of perfect line. You have to have some sort of perfect heritage to be useful in the kingdom of God. And that's just nonsense. It's just not true. God uses all sorts of different people. His grace works through all sorts of flawed situations. God can redeem all our, all our secret history. <laughs> Each of us have got our own secret history that we don't want people to know about. Things that we would rather just be airbrushed out, just deleted out of history. And sometimes God can even take those things, the worst things you've done, and he can use them powerfully in your life to redeem you, to set you free. I've met some people, I lived with, with a couple for a while who, um, she, was, um, she was an ex-drug addict, he was an ex-drug dealer, that was their story. And yet God was using them powerfully then to 20 years later after years of healing and God restoring them, God was using them powerfully to speak into the lives of current drug addicts and drug dealers and people from all sorts of parts of society and God took their horrible story and some of their story was genuinely horrible and he redeemed all of it and used them and sent them back into his world to serve his purposes and for all of us we're all surrounded it's not just that we're flawed and ordinary but as well within our family within our own this church our own family tree we're surrounded by other people that are ordinary and flawed <laughs> No one is perfect, none of us. And that should be a wonderful release to us because God's called us all together for a purpose, for a reason. So God's people are a, 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 a very ordinary. And also with family. You see this in, in this list, it starts by saying, at the start of the list it said, these are the heads of their father's houses. And God lists them through this list in groups together as families. You see, because in God's plan, it's not just that God cares about individuals, but he cares about family, about family units. 
And God spreads his grace often through parents. Some of us here in the room would be parents. Some of us, all of us would have parents. Some of us will be parents in the future. And I don't mean that, that children are saved by our faith. They're not, definitely not saved by our faith. But we get a role as parents of pointing our people, pointing our children even to Jesus. It's like a prophetic role. It's like when John the Baptist says, look, look at the Messiah. Look at the one who's coming. We get to do the same. We get to say to our children, look at Jesus. We get to spend our, our, our parenting life pointing them to him. Using different situations, using the Bible, using our time with them to remind them all the time who Jesus is and what he's done for them. We can't save them. They won't be saved by our faith, but we get to point our kids to Jesus. In Joshua 24, as the writer's looking at the, the brokenness of the world around him, he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And each parent gets to make that decision. No matter what's going on around you, no matter what's going on in our city, Sometimes our kids home from, come home from school and tell us all sorts of stories and things and, and you think, oh, goodness, good grief. How do we parent our kids through this? How do we get them to decide between right and wrong and how that works out? But we get to say, we're going to serve the Lord. <laughs> we don't necessarily know sometimes how to navigate the difficulties in society, the challenges that they'll face, but we get to point them to Jesus. And that's something that's important for dads in particular, it's not that mums don't have a role, but it's, it's worth talking directly to, to the men in the room because it's often the guys in our society that, that abdicate or that are absent. And, and fathers can be absent physically. They're just not there. In, 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 in our kids' classes at school, there are many, many, many families where the dads aren't there. They're just not there. So many kids that don't have fathers or they see them every now and again or from time to time. But even if we are there, we can be absent emotionally. We can be absent spiritually. That's a huge problem in the world around us. It's a problem in the church of dads not being dads, not fulfilling the role that God's called us to. And more, more than anything, the, the world around us needs fathers. Your family needs fathers. But the world around us, the people around you, there are so many people around us, not just for the, the kids in my kids' school, but people that you work with, people that you live with that have never known a dad or never known a father that's really cared for them or loved them, have never had that sort of figure in their life. And we get to be brothers and sisters in Christ to people. Sometimes maybe you, you might find yourself being parents to people that aren't your natural children, but you get to play a wonderful role in their life of, of uh, saying, well, we're going to serve the Lord. Let me help you to see Jesus and find out who he is. So God's people are, are ordinary, a family. And we're here for a purpose as well. We're here for a purpose. You see, what happens is in these verses, in this genealogy as it goes through, we see the, the steadily unfolding plan of God working out. We see his purposes getting played out. Because we see, uh, it starts off by talking about three of Jacob's sons. It doesn't list all of them because it's focusing on the family of Levi. But Jacob's sons were the founding fathers that moved to Egypt 
the 12 sons of Jacob who from there the, the people of God came out of. And then the list then goes on to, to one of the sons. It talks about Levi. It focuses on his son, Kohath. It focuses on his son, Amran, who's then the father of Aaron and Moses. And you can see through generation by generation, you see God's family plan, his purpose working out as it goes, as it goes through. And the thing about God's plan, God's steadily unfolding plan, is that so often we can look in our lives for, we can look for instant blessing. We can, we can look for a quick fix. We, we can discover something that's wrong with our life or with, with, with something, a situation that we, we don't like. And we want God to move suddenly. We want, we want him to follow our timing. We want him to follow our plan. And often you'll find more and more in your walk with Jesus that, Sometimes God works like that. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he just breaks in. I've got many stories of where God has broken in powerfully into my life in a moment. Actually, the normal pattern of your Christian life will be little by little, God leads you. That little by little, step by step, he guides you. That there's a steadily unfolding plan through generation after generation that works out. It doesn't happen in an instant or in a moment. Sometimes it's not even about your lifetime. <laughs> Sometimes God's plan goes, in fact, all of the time, God's, you're, you're fitting into a plan that God's working out through all of history. And sometimes God gives you the privilege of being able to kind of zoom out and think, oh, wow, that's what God is doing. So my, my granddad, I remember him telling me a, a story of uh, how he, he was in his teenage years and he'd been sent off to boarding school in England, um, which this would have been, um, you know, 80, 90 years ago, probably wouldn't have been a very pleasant experience. And he, he hated it. Um, and, he, he, and he was lonely, so he wrote, he, he began to contemplate suicide. He began to think about killing himself. So he wrote down a list he, of all the ways he could kill himself. He wrote it on a, on a sheet of paper. And um, <laughs> amazingly, God used that to powerfully speak to him. And God said to him, if you can... If I've given you the ability to come up with all these creative ways to kill yourself, what else could I do with your life? <laughs> Amazing. And God did something in him in, in, in writing a, a, um, a suicide list. God did something dramatic in his life. And uh, he, he became a, a minister in the church. Not that there's anything special about doing that. But I've met so many people over the years that come to me and say, oh, your granddad, he married us. Or he, he was there when our baby was born. Or you know, he did my, my granddad's funeral. Or he was here in this moment or that moment. And also, one of my, the things that my granddad was involved in is he used to, about 30 years ago, he would travel to churches here in the Netherlands. And he, he began to come and pray here. I remember someone telling me a few years ago about how he used to, they used to visit Amsterdam regularly and pray that God would do things in this city. And he's dead now, and we weren't here when he moved, and a lot of those stories I didn't even know when we moved. But sometimes you get to zoom out and you think, wow, look at God's plan at work. And I'm not, this isn't some sort of Messiah complex that, wow, look at, look at how God's been engineering me for this wonderful moment. But for all of us, there's a plan that God's working out. 
there's a story that sometimes we get to zoom out and think, wow, look what God did. Look how he engineered those situations and circumstances. But most of the time, we're not aware of those things. Probably most of the time, 95% of what God's doing in our life, we have no idea about. What we see is sometimes just a 5%, just the 1%. But the biggest story of how God is preparing us, how God's leading us, guiding us, shaping us, saving us from all sorts of different scenarios, leading us through difficult seasons. Most of that, we don't get to see what God's doing, his plan for our life. And not just his plan for, for our life, but his plan for this city that we live in. It doesn't happen overnight. It won't happen just by one individual or one church. But sometimes you get the privilege of being able to zoom out and think, wow, look at what God's doing in our city. I believe that God's going to do much more in our city, that he has a plan that he's working out that won't happen overnight. And some of us, it means that we're going to need to give our lives for this. Some people here in this room have already done that. They said, I'm going to live my whole life in this city. I'm going to serve this city. I'm going to love this city. God's, God's called me to. Cities like this, with so many people coming and going all the time, they need people who are going to say, I'm just going to live here. I'm not just going to dash off for the newest opportunity. I'm going to stay here. All my life, I'm going to be a solid pillar in a community. I'm going to love people around me for as long as I live and, to, and, and see what God does. And it might be that you're here this afternoon and you're not a believer in Jesus at all. It might be worth you just taking a moment and considering that maybe that's why you're here this afternoon. That God's even been engineering your life, maybe even just engineering your week, just so that you could get here today because he wants to speak to you, because he wants to call you to follow him. Maybe that's exactly what God's been building your life up to, for a life of following Jesus. And that might scare you, that might confuse you, but it really is the best thing that you could give your life for. There's a steadily unfolding plan of God. And part of that plan is for God to make himself known God uses even broken people to make himself known to the world around them. He could take Aaron and Moses from a dad who'd married his aunt. He could take a weird, bizarre situation like that and equip these two men to go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go, to lead a people out of slavery. And that's how God uses the church, people like you and me, he doesn't wait till we're perfect. He doesn't wait till we're ready for that special moment. God uses us just as we are by his grace to make his, his name known. In Ephesians, we find the apostle Paul, he says, though I'm the very least of all the saints, he didn't mean the saints in like a Roman Catholic term, he meant as in all believers, people that follow Jesus. He said, I'm the very least this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
That's talking about the church, the people of God. Even though we may be the very least of the saints, you may feel like I'm the, of all the people in this room, I'm the least, I'm the lowest. Maybe that's how you feel. The same way that God could use Paul, he can use you to make his name known, to, to declare and to display the manifold wisdom of God. You know, the manifold wisdom of God is us. It's his people together making his name known with the wisdom of God. The same way that God will make himself known to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron, God will make his name known to the people around us through us. There's a, a wonderful verse in the chapter before this, in Ephesians 2 verse 10, where God describes, us, uh, describes his church, his people as his workmanship. Or you could translate that, his work of art, his masterpiece. And in, way this, in a way, this genealogy is a bit like that. If you go into the Rijksmuseum, if you walk into the, uh, the, the, the gallery right in the very center, the whole building is designed that you go in the entrance, or at least it was originally, you walk up the main staircase, and then you come in that back of the, the room, and in front of you, down the very end of the hall, is the Night Watch, Rembrandt's painting. When they refurbished the museum um, uh, five, ten years ago, they moved everything around, but the night watch they kept exactly where it was. It was the only picture they didn't move. Because that whole building, that room is designed that you, you walk down towards it and then as you get closer and closer, all these faces come out to you. All these different individuals, different people. Um, and none of those people in that painting, they're all real people who lived. People that sat before Rembrandt and he painted them. And, and I, I would imagine that many of them, all of them would have stories Good stories, bad stories. Some of them might have been reputable individuals. Some of them perhaps not. But we don't really know any of their stories. We don't really think about it when you look at the painting. You get struck by this masterpiece, this work of art. And that's how the church is supposed to be, the world around us. We're supposed to be this work of art that displays the manifold wisdom of God, displays his plan, the way we love each other, <laughs> the way our community cares for one another. People around us are supposed to look in and think, wow, there's something about you that's just different. There's something about you that's just enticing. And that's how God's mission, that's how his plan is supposed to work out through a people being sent out into the city to, first of all, just to love one another before we do anything else, to love God and to love our city, and through that love, we get to display something to the world around us. See, what God's doing is he's making himself known, and his purpose is ultimately to save for himself a people. In this genealogy, it kind of appears uh, six chapters into the book to introduce Aaron into the scene, into the scene. we already know about Moses, and the two of them, God's calling them to go and lead the people out, to go and to call these people out of slavery. You see, all the time, behind the scenes, God's been working out his, his plan. He's been pulling the strings. He's been pulling things together. And this has been 400 years of the Israelites being in slavery, thinking, when's God going to do something? When's God going to do something? And all the time behind the scenes, God's at work to work out his salvation plan. We can think like that in our lives. When's God going to do something? 
When's God going to do something? When's God going to do something in, with, with my wife or my son or this situation? When's God going to do something? All the time he's at work, just pulling the strings behind the scenes. God's at work all of the time. And he's working out this grand salvation plan. He's been moving all the protagonists, all the chief characters into the right position, into place. He's been engineering everything to work out his plan, his big story. Let me just finish by reading this verse from uh, Ephesians 1. It says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. See, God's plan has not just been working out through 400 years of the Israelite history. It's not just been working out through your parents and your grandparents. God's plan for your life goes beyond time itself, before the foundation of the world before God made our planet. Even think about that for a second. God chose you. That's what it said. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's not just a nice metaphor that the book is using. It's saying that God picked you out. He chose you. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. And he decided it millennia ago. And he called you be part of his purposes, to be part of his plan. So we can read this genealogy and see how God's plan works out through 400 years, but that's really just a hint, just a whisper of what God's been doing through all of time and eternity to call you to him, to draw you to him, to call you to follow him, to love him, to serve him. Why don't you just, we're going to, Take communion in a moment. Why don't, if you're comfortable, why don't you just stand to your feet? Um, you can stay seated if you prefer. Let me pray. God, we, we thank you that through, through very ordinary people, you can work out your plans. We thank you, God, that you've chosen us to be part of your plans even despite our mess and mistakes, the things we've done or said or thought, despite all of those things, you chose us. It's not that you just chose us before the foundation of the world and then you discovered last week that we'd actually made a bit of a mess of things and you've decided to unchoose us. It doesn't work like that, God. You've chosen us by your grace. We thank you, Jesus, that there was a salvation plan that was working out through history. And just as Moses and Aaron were able to lead the people out, Jesus, you've led a salvation plan that you died for us. You gave your life for us to lead us out. That you called us, you chose us to follow you. And all the sin and all the mess that should stop us that should just stop us in our tracks, is forgiven. You've made us righteous now. We can follow you. We can live for this purpose that you've given us. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace on our lives.